I was right as a trivet, pleased to be alive, pleased that the ghastly operation had been over, knew that there was a long road ahead because now you've had all your giblets removed. After much consideration, you made the decision to have surgery and all going well, it was a success. From this point forward is where the business of getting back on your feet truly begins. But for most patients, it likely won't be a straight line from A to Z. For starters, there's the seemingly endless bottles and packets of medication that you have to ingest. Pill popping 35, 36 pills a day could be morphine, it could be painkillers. Some of these pills are like two centimetres long and probably five millimetres thick and you can't like break them. So it, I started gagging every time I would have a gag reflex to pills. Even now I, I, I don't take pills unless I really need to. And the demanding physical therapy you have to put yourself through. My esophagus is bent but I was two days later able to get on a stationary bike and start cycling again. Not to mention the psychological challenges that can stem from having our bodies altered permanently by surgery. When I woke up, I was in denial. I, I just thought, you know, death was, was better than what I was going through. Today, we're talking about recovery. You'll hear how, through a combination of rehabilitation, diet and psychological support, our peer network made the often difficult transition from life post-surgery to life full stop. Listen to hear how by focusing on the future instead of dwelling on the past and giving yourself a pat on the back every now and then, you too can set yourself up for success after surgery. Now what? Your Cancer Support podcast is an NHS podcast series where you'll hear frank and honest accounts from over a dozen cancer patients about their experiences with a disease that at some point, directly or indirectly, affects us all. Consider them your peer support network. I'm your host, Julia Bradbury. In 2021, I became one of the 375,000 people who are diagnosed with cancer in the UK every year. I know firsthand what it's like to have your life suddenly upended by this disease and the havoc it can wreak on your body, mind and everything in between. I also know that with a little bit of luck and a lot of expertise, that surviving cancer isn't just possible. It's becoming more and more likely with every passing year. If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely that you or someone you love has recently received a cancer diagnosis. No doubt you've got questions, and lots of them. Our hope is that this series can provide you with some answers. Our peers come from a wide variety of backgrounds. One thing that they all have in common? First-hand experience with cancer in its many shapes and forms. So think of us as your cancer support group, just in audio form. Today's topic of discussion, life after surgery. From the outset, it's important to make peace with the fact that after your initial procedure, there may be further surgeries and intensive treatments yet to come. I was expecting after the surgery that I would walk away and, and I, uh, I would be done and dusted. I had to go back and have a double whammy of the hormone and radiotherapy, which is uh, very ironic since I 
I'd chosen not to go down that route because of impatience. Mark has undergone numerous surgeries over the course of his cancer journey. The worst was the five and a half hour operation with the lung infection because I was told I had 39% chance of survival. But that was definitely the worst part of it all because I had to say goodbye to my wife and my son the night before the operation because um, the consultant, who was a terrific consultant, and I couldn't really thank him enough, said about the non-survival, the chances weren't good. But the worst part was saying goodbye. But then, after I was lying there awake, about three o'clock in the morning, before I was going down to surgery in the morning, I was thought to myself, I've survived four major operations. I'm going to survive this one as well. And I did. For Mark, convincing himself that he was going to make it through was half the battle. You just have to keep believing that there's someone looking after you and you're going to survive. I think that record, I'm a survivor. The more I listen to it now, the more it means something. While I was in recovery, I had a doctor phoned up and said, by his tone, he wasn't expecting me to survive the night. And he came round the ward the next morning. And I smiled at him and I said, I'm still here. It's not unusual for patients to experience fluctuations in mood and even outright depression in the aftermath of surgery. Vimbai, who after being diagnosed with a vulva carcinoma, had her vulva removed, certainly felt that way after her procedure. You know, when I woke up, at first there was issue that, oh, maybe I've lost, you know, the use of my legs. And then I had so many drains and I couldn't walk and I was, you know, in bed and I had nurses coming to clean my wounds and bandage them and all this. Oh, when I then asked uh, my husband to take a picture, oh, I was horrified because, you know, I felt like, oh my God, you know, you, you, as a woman, you need some of your body parts, you know, to function as a woman. And that's how, you know, you take pride in yourself. It really hit me so much. I used to cry a lot secretly because I felt like, you know, I'm no longer, what kind of a human being am I? Because I don't have my womanhood. So what am I now? Is, you know, but, you know, as time goes on, I think you embrace, you know, the new you. Another thing patients may have to grapple with following surgery are side effects. Some of these will be short-term in nature. But I got left with this fascinating side effect, you know, when I came out of hospital, that there was still a lot of gas in the body. And so you could sort of press my arm or a bit of my stomach or something, and you could feel things popping, a bit like pressing Rice Krispies or, you know, a plastic wrapping bag. And you could just feel that, you know, you were displacing little tiny pockets of gas. So I got the children, and, yeah, they say, Carl, come on, come and press here. You know, it's really weird. Whilst others are potentially permanent. Of all those things that, that I was warned about, the only thing that, that has come to pass has been a, a total loss of sexual function. Uh, I was told that that would come back in two years. It never has. Um, just they've they've snipped a nerve along the along the road. 
if I was if I was thirty five, that would be far more important than I am at seventy two. Uh, but I'm I'm totally continent, and to, to look at me again, I'm not ill. I've just had cancer. The incontinency, because this is consequential from having the surgery, but it's a horrible thing to talk about. It's I don't mind talking about it because it it nearly finished me off. Um, you know to. It's hard to describe to people who have got a working bladder just how dreadful it is. After undergoing surgery for bladder cancer, Teresa found it extremely challenging to no longer be in complete control of her bodily functions, which understandably evoked feelings of embarrassment and sometimes even shame as she found it difficult to talk about with others. To be sitting at your desk at home pissing yourself and you don't there's no warning you don't know when it's happening and the risk of going out the house anywhere to see friends to go to a bar to go to work and have a meeting is just it's just unthinkable the humiliation and embarrassment of it all but you can't explain to people and it's so unacceptable it's like shitting yourself in public or something and people don't want to stick about to understand. They don't want to know your medical conditions. It's just socially completely unacceptable. Coming to terms with the impact of any such side effects and learning to adapt to them both physically and emotionally will be a significant hurdle to overcome. What's vital to keep in mind is that recovery is a marathon and not a sprint. Your feelings about your body and ability to tolerate a range of emotions as they ebb and flow will likely change over time as you start to learn about your new body. When it comes to rehabilitation, you might find yourself having to relearn how to do something that you've always taken for granted, like Brian did when he was recovering from surgery for esophageal cancer. If you have part of your esophagus removed, which is the operation called an esophagectomy, it means that you've got to start learning how to eat again. And everything you try to eat is a very alien process. And they come around with food in the hospital that they describe as soft mushable. And it really was difficult to sort of get any of it down me because it just is such a difficult process. It's not something that you can really do very much about because, as I say, you've got to learn how to eat again as though you were a baby. Obviously, you know, you've got to put it in your mouth and chew it and all that sort of thing, but the actual taste of it and the sort of taking it down is really difficult and really, really challenging. You just really sort of take a long time, and I'm not talking about the time in hospital. I'm talking about months and some people even years to get back to anything like normal eating. A long process of recovery, which requires a lot of hard work and mental fortitude on the patient's part, can sometimes be a deeply exasperating experience, something Mookie, who following surgery to remove her lung, can relate to. So I had tons of frustrating moments where it's like I just couldn't lift my arm more than, you know, just trying to recover or try to do these breathing exercises or, you know, and sometimes there were days when some days were slower than others. And then you just, you know what, you do the best you can 
I completely took it as a challenge, but I, but I, I like those kind of challenges. So for me, it was like, I'm going to lift two cans of soup by the end of that week. You know, it's just like really going for a goal that I know I is attainable. And it only gets frustrating when it's something you know that you can do and it's a little bit trickier to do. I put the can of soup down and I'm like, okay, I did three today instead of five. And I wrote it down and it's so important to track everything. So I actually got like an A3 piece of paper and a pencil and I had it on my wall, analog. This is all analog style, you know, and had a ruler and drew everything out. And I just put a check mark on the date, the exercises I did and which day. And even though it's micro and, but it's so, so important. I just can't stress that enough to listen to the physios and, and that's the recovery. And, and it's so important to work on that. A good rule of thumb is not to measure how far you might be from your end goal or what you're capable of before surgery but to acknowledge and give yourself credit for what you achieve in a single rehab session. Celebrating each and every small win, no matter how insignificant they may appear to you, will give you the boost in confidence and lift to your mood that will allow you to, piece by piece, build the runway that will get you to your ultimate destination. But then you can kind of see the progress. You could see yourself progress and it's so that makes such a difference in the world. And you could see yourself and what you did each day and, and how that worked. I can eat like normal now, but the, the, the journey there was really quite difficult because I had to start eating things that were very sloppy. Uh, I ate a lot of porridge. I ate a lot of soup. I had a, lo- a lot of soft foods. And uh, one of the dietitians came up with the following theory, which was that it helps you to start eating if you before you actually have your meal you have a small glass of sherry which um, relaxes you and relaxes your um, I suppose your eating sort of your digestive system and so that actually went down really well so a small glass of sherry and yeah, yeah then something to eat I mean it's not something you want to keep doing obviously but for the time being it did actually help so there's always a way and you've just got to stick with it. And it, it lasted a long time, this phase of not being able to eat really solid things because we went on holiday four months after my operation, which was quite brave. We went off to Tenerife because it would be nice to do something different and see a bit of sun and all that sort of thing. So there's a nice hotel with a huge buffet of things to eat. And of course, you don't feel like eating very many of them. So I had a lot of puddings, but it doesn't matter. You know, you just got to get down you what you can get down you. And that's what I did. And when you have those frustrating days, you know, try to call somebody or if, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to have a great partner and family around you or even a neighbor that you can come and poke fun at yourself or something and try to, try to take things with a little bit of humor too, because you are recovering. And you tell yourself you're on the recovery path, you know. For several of our peers, chemotherapy was a significant part of their pre- and post-surgery journeys. And in much the same way that we have to be patient with ourselves during rehab, chemotherapy will mean adjusting your expectations of what you're capable of, as the cancer-killing drugs moving through your body will leave you feeling nauseous, fatigued and managing a whole host of side effects. The only 
preconception I'd got about chemotherapy was that people had said it was quite bad and the hair falls out. Well, in my case, I wasn't too concerned about my hair falling out because it had already fallen out. So that wasn't really an issue. I think it was a 12 week cycle that I'd sort of fall asleep on Friday and not wake up till Sunday night, just in time for work on Monday. I saw it as cumulative. So for the first session, I thought that was not so bad. And then about the, I don't know, 10th or 20th session, I thought, oh, now I'm beginning to sleep to longer and longer and longer. I mean, the whole thing, though, was feeling weird from start to finish. You sort of cut your cloth and limit your ambitions when you do have cancer knocking on your door. And it was only really after the chemotherapy and the regular CT scans, which at the time were every three months, that you allowed yourself to be optimistic and have ambitions back. In the aftermath of surgery, you might find yourself needing to make substantial and lasting changes to your lifestyle, as Serdar did. So yes, exercise, more, 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 more and uh, regular exercise, that was very important. It is very important anyway. Now, after the initial phase, uh, I actually started uh, going to gym, which, you know, before my diagnosis, I probably went to the gym half a dozen times in my entire life. Well, I started going to gym like twice a week. I started this active life, if you like. And like the incremental developments of rehab, when it comes to long-term lifestyle resets, they can begin with one simple change. For example, one of the things that I've changed as well was uh, I always drove everywhere, okay? I used to go to shops. I used to do my grocery shopping. That, yeah, whatever you imagine, I used to go with my car. Then I, I stopped driving. I thought to myself, no, Sarah, no, yeah, you know, you're not going to take your car. Don't be lazy. You're going to walk. So I started doing lots of walking. So that was the physical side. There was the activity side of things. And as I said, I also did uh, you know, a fair amount of changes with my diet, basically trying to adopt a new lifestyle, if you like. For Dave, the changes were about wanting to have a life that physically wasn't on the table for him prior to his diagnosis. I mean, it changed my approach to exercise for one thing, because a lot of my time prior to having the diagnosis, I used to spend preparing uh, lectures and things like that, I'd be sitting down. I would probably maybe do 100 steps a day sometimes and for, for weeks on end. And that is a big no-no in terms of what might be happening inside your bladder because if something's going on and you're not moving. So uh, the, the way I think, I now try to do 5,000 steps a day wherever I can, no matter what. It's also made me think, it made me think initially about how losing weight, but then I lost interest in that because I don't know, I'm just that, I've always been big, but, um, and I ought to have done that, but I did, now I'm doing it. So I'm thinking in terms of the rest of my years, which may or may not be that many, I now want to be different and uh, be a different kind of person, do different kinds of things. Psychologically, having something to work towards is a vital part of the recovery process. Well, I had the operation on the 6th of November and I was on the tennis court on the 31st of December. 
again with the blessing of the surgeon. So <laughs> it's very gen gentle. I was only having a little knock up with my wife. It's just uh, it's just motivating. Those sort of things are motivating, and you feel your journey is sort of progressing, and you feel like well, it's all been worth it somehow if you can actually start seeing the future unfolding in front of you that you're doing what you want to do. Another thing that we did was, uh, as a family, the, the two sons, my wife and I, and the, the two wives, we, we, we rented a house in uh, the Cotswolds and we went there for uh, a few days and that sort of thing. That, that was very motivating, you know, having the family around you. Taking small steps towards the things you love and value can make you feel more like your true self. Recognising these meaningful steps in your life can boost your mood and motivation. Your first social gathering following an operation is a meaningful moment and should be celebrated as such. I had the operation, I think, towards the end, uh, end of the first week of July and a friend was having a birthday party about 10 days later. So I sort of made it a target that, you know, I will go to the birthday party. And I, you know, I had to go by train, you know, with the catheter still in and the urine bag. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to do this. And a mutual friend who lives nearby was going to the same party. So she very sweetly said, well, look, I'll come up on the train with you just to make sure you're okay. And so, I, you know, I went to a party and stayed a couple of hours. And, you know, I didn't feel brilliant, but, you know, I was able to socialise and talk to a few friends and then came home. Surgical outcomes are getting better with every passing year. The good thing is things are improving and treatments are advancing and there's new ways of doing surgeries and there's new ways of testing, you know. It's common in the immediate aftermath of surgery to feel as if many of life's options are no longer available to you. You know, you expect some concessions, but your whole horizons uh, become limited about what you can and can't do. And I thought, you know, whilst I was busy planning my funeral, that I wouldn't be able to ride horses ever again. And it is physical and you do need an abdomen that works. So my abdomen is very weak really now. Well, well, because it's got had a hole punched through its muscle, <laughs> so it's never going to be, uh, you know, a, a six pack. But Teresa soon learned that she'd underestimated herself. And then, like I said, in that sort of uh, euphoric moment, three hours later, I thought, oh, no, well, perhaps I can, <laughs> perhaps I can. <laughs> but it did take a long while, and it's uh, one of the great loves of my life. We can't say this enough. Life after surgery is a marathon and not a sprint. Allow yourself the time and space to make incremental steps in the right direction. And don't beat yourself up if there are setbacks along the way. You're likely far more resilient, both physically and mentally, than you've given yourself credit for. So do the rehab, follow the dietary advice, and make sure you look after your head and the rest will follow. And remember, every hard one inch of progress deserves a celebration. On the next episode of Now What? Your Cancer Support Podcast, our topic of discussion will be cultural perspectives on cancer. I saw women 
black women in the clinic that decided they're not going to have treatment, they're not going to do this and that, and they'd come into the therapy rooms and they'd be talking, you know, you're crazy, why would you want to have that? And you can just see fear coming out of every pore of their body and the only way they can control it is by saying, I'm not going to have that because this, because that. Two of them I know that have died. Now what? Your Cancer Support Podcast is an NHS podcast produced by What's the Story Sounds. It's hosted by me, Julia Bradbury. For more information on the topics discussed in today's episode, as well as links to additional resources, please check out our show notes. This series was created by the leading cancer specialists at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital and their patients, whose personal testimony you'll hear on this and every other episode of the podcast. We're beyond grateful for their contributions. Brian, Chi, Dave, Jim, John, Mark, Mookie, Serdar, Teresa and Vimbai were the peers who featured on this episode. This episode was produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. Executive producers are Daryl Brown, Sophie Ellis, Stephanie Fraser, Naomi Good, Zainab Noor, Jessica Nyman and Julia Tadeo. Special thanks to Placida Ojinaka, Abiola Coca, Evan Russell, and Guy's Cancer Charity.